Welcome to Civics and Coffee. My name is Alicia and I am a self-professed history nerd. Each week, I'm going to chat about a topic on U.S. history and give you both the highlights and occasionally break down some of the complexities in history and share stories you may not remember learning in high school, all in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. Hey everyone, welcome back. Well, I went and did it. I joined the Twitter. Look for me at CivicsPod. And I plan to do what I've been doing with Instagram and Facebook. Daily history facts, episode hints, and of course, engaging with all of you. So, if it's your thing, look for me. But, getting into this week's episode. An episode that reminds me of a rap song, mind you. But, we'll get into that later. Did you know... The United States Constitution was not the first attempt at establishing a national government. That distinction belongs to the ill-fated and short-lived Articles of Confederation. Basically, American government's first draft. Hey, we all have to start somewhere, right? And in terms of drafts, I'd give it a solid C+. Battling the British in the quest for independence, the 13 colonies rallied together to be a united front in their fight. This forced dependency hindered on one shared goal, getting out from under the crown. But once the revolution was over, and the common cause behind them, the supposed united colonies went their separate ways, wanting sovereignty and securing that independence within the Articles, without really fully grasping the impacts of what a decentralized government would mean. So, what were the Articles of Confederation? What did they do? Also, what did they not do? And why were they replaced? Grab your coffee, peeps. Let's do this. The Articles of Confederation came about originally as a way to secure credit and distribute supplies to the Continental Army in the quest for independence. It was not meant to ban the individual colonies together permanently, but rather to establish an official pact of friendship in order to achieve a common goal. Although the idea of a confederation, or network of states had been brewing for quite some time, dating all the way back to the Albany Plan in 1754, written by Mr. Franklin. Benjamin Franklin. Complete side note here, as an amateur historian, I know Benjamin Franklin. Inventor, philosopher, the guy on the C-note, but I feel like I do not truly know him. Perhaps an episode in his honor is in order. What do you guys think? Let me know. But anyways, getting back. At the Congress, Representative Richard Henry Lee called for those present to take up the matter of formalizing the alliances between the states. And just like with the Declaration of Independence, a committee was formed to write up a guide for how the colonies could unite as one. There were six separate versions of the Articles of Confederation, including one written by Benjamin Franklin. However, it would be the version written by John Dickinson of Pennsylvania that would gain ultimate approval and ratification. Presented in July of 1776, Dickinson's original document required massive rewrites and was hotly debated. The draft was pretty revolutionary. It included things like the abolition of slavery, a strong central government, and protection for Native Americans. And though the representatives were revolutionary in their fight against the supposed tyranny, they weren't about to share their power with others and were deeply opposed to any centralized power. 
After many discussions and edits, the Articles of Confederation was whittled down to just 13 points with a preamble and a conclusion. Gone were the protections for indigenous people and rights for women. Instead, what remained was basically a confirmation of the already existing power structure amongst the colonies. The Articles officially established the name of the colonies as the United States of America, but the rest of the document proved to be pretty toothless and ineffectual. The members were so concerned about centralized government power that they were committed to vesting as much autonomy as possible into the states. So, what did the Articles say? Well, they permitted for the free movement between the states, provided each state with one vote in Congress, and allowed the central government to declare war. The document authorized for the raising of an army by Congress, but put the states in charge of military ranks. The Articles discussed the disbursement of debt, and stipulated debts shall be paid by state-raised funds, however provided for no taxing authority so Congress could only ask the states nicely for money. This proved difficult when trying to fund the Continental Army. The Articles also prohibited a state or representative from accepting foreign gifts or titles, and no one would be known by nobility. Also included were term limits for the representatives. No rep could serve more than three out of a six-year period. Amendments were allowed to the Articles, but only with the approval of all 13 states, which basically meant each state had veto power. And even regular laws required a bit much, with nine states required to vote to approve. It's also important to highlight what was not included in the Articles. There were no other branches of government established. This meant no national court system and no executive power to enforce the laws passed by Congress. Basically, everything was based on the honor system, with the hopes that representatives would recognize what would be in the national interest. So why were the Articles of Confederation so weak? Well, the representatives at the Congress were in the midst of a war against a centralized government power who were attempting to impose their authority from thousands of miles away and without having any true sense of what the colonies were going through. How could they, in one breath, cast off the ills of a centralized government and in the other breath, force a strong central government on the new republic? Another factor is the lack of national unity or national identity at the time the Articles were drafted. It was very clear there was but one thing holding the colonies together, the defeat of the British. But people did not identify as Americans. They identified as Georgians, Virginians, New Yorkers, and they were singularly focused on protecting their colony, or state. Prior to the Revolution, many states had been self-governing with state constitutions and laws firmly in place, such as Virginia, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. As they saw it, there was no need for a central house of government to impose laws. They already took care of it on a localized level. As Sweet Brown would say, ain't nobody got time for that. Lastly, an argument could be made that the representatives at the Congress just did not have the time to dedicate discussion and resources into resolving some major issues faced when attempting to combine the various states into one nation. Think about all the compromises coming up in the Constitution. Representative counts. Slavery. Tariffs. There was a lot of ish to figure out. And they had a war to fight. Everything else was secondary. Even the process of ratification was fraught with demands, with Maryland delaying their approval of the Articles unless states like Virginia released their claims on the Western territories acquired as a result of the Treaty of Paris with Great Britain. Maryland wanted the Western Territory to be under federal control and parsed out by Congress, not claimed by the states closest to the respective borders. Thomas Jefferson was able to convince his state, Virginia, 
to yield their claims to the West. And so Maryland finally ratified the Articles on February 2, 1781. They would go into effect the following month. So it was in this vein of state identity and needs rather than national identity that the new republic began. One of the first shortcomings of the Articles popped up in the immediate aftermath of the Revolution. A lot of debt had been accumulated, with payments due to Dutch and French governments who aided in America's efforts to gain independence. Without the authority to impose a tax, or the authority to enforce it, all Congress could do was ask nicely for the states to pay their fair share. Can you guess which way that went? Seeing the solvency of America on the brink of collapse, the superintendent of finance, Robert Morris, suggested an amendment in 1781 to allow for a 5% import tax. Teeny tiny Rhode Island would be the one to torpedo the amendment and prevent its ratification. All that one state, one vote business. Not to be deterred, another tax amendment was brought up again in 1783. This time, it was thwarted by New York, who were getting a little concerned about the rise of a potential centralized government. Another issue to crop up? Ununified trade policy. Leaning hard on the state's power and authority, the Articles allowed for states to make their own trade policies with other countries. This soon expanded to taxing goods from other states. Of course, this led to disputes between the states, seeing their own interest ahead of the new nation. And without any enforcement power to help resolve the issues, Congress was unable to find a tenable solution. And so the states continued to act as individual nations, printing their own currency, raising their own militia, and collecting their own debts, all without the support or enforcement of a federal government. This isn't to say there was no attempt at trying to fix some of these issues. There were. Twice, in fact. In 1781 and 1783, Congress tried to make edits to the Articles to give them the authority to levy taxes against the states. However, that promptly brought up a major sticking point. How would the tax burden be decided? By the number of inhabitants? By land value? And if by inhabitants, should slaves count? This fractured framework came to a head with this teeny tiny little event known as Shays' Rebellion. In the midst of a depression, Massachusetts decided to pay its debt not by printing more money, avoiding the whole devaluing of their currency in the market, but instead by raising taxes. And if people were unable to pay, they'd be tossed into debtor's prison, and sometimes their land was confiscated as payment. Enter Daniel Shays, a Revolutionary War veteran who faced a series of debts he was unable to pay upon returning home from the war. Having served in the Continental Army, Shays was discharged from service without receiving a full payment for his time in uniform. Shays soon realized he was not the only one being squeezed from both ends. A number of his fellow veterans were on the hook for debts they could not pay due to a lack of payment from the government for their military service. And now the government wanted to collect on debts? Are you kidding me? Shays and his neighbors attempted to make a petition at the Boston legislature asking for the end of the state's direct taxation, reduced court costs, and exempting their work tools from the debt process. However, their pleas went unheard. On August 29, 1786, Shays and other protesters marched on Northampton and prevented the courthouse from convening. They demanded the courts take action to prevent the debt collection. Otherwise, they would prevent the tax collectors from doing their jobs. These protests quickly spread, with supporters of Shays and his cause calling themselves regulators, shutting down courthouses throughout the state in an effort to prevent tax collection. And here's where the rap song comes in. 
every time I saw regulators while working on this episode, I immediately went to the Nate Dogg and Warren G song of the same name. Regulators! Bound up! You're welcome for that random piece of information. Continuing on. After months of successfully preventing the courts from obtaining payments, Shays and his supporters decided to attack the Federal Armory in Springfield, Massachusetts. On January 25, 1787, 1,500 regulators stormed the building. Unable to compel local troops to rise up, with many agreeing with the regulators, a private militia was raised by the local wealthy merchants. Led by former Continental Army General Benjamin Lincoln, the private militia was able to quell the uprising and end the attack. Shays' rebellion put into succinct focus the weakness of the Articles of Confederation and the need to establish a more centralized federal government to handle debts and erect militias, amongst other things. In his book about the coming Constitution, historian Joseph Ellison argues there were actually two revolutions, one to achieve independence and one to modify the Republican framework in order to create a nation-sized republic. And so, while the Articles were probably doomed from the start, they provided a pathway for the members at the Constitutional Convention in 1787 and provided a good rough draft for the framing of a new way of government. I really hope you've been enjoying Civics and Coffee. Please spread the word to your friends and family and write a review on Apple Podcasts so more people can hear about the show. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics and Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to our next cup of coffee together. Music